Last May, seems like a long time ago now, David Cameron won a national election. Of course, he didn't do that single-handedly. He and his party won. Whatever you thought of that victory, it was, for most people, an unexpected victory. And I'm sure David Cameron was full of the joy of success for about two weeks. And then he had to come back and face the divisions in his own party over the issue of Europe. At the moment, that conservative victory at the election probably seems a long, long way away. In fact, I wonder if David Cameron ever wakes up and wishes he hadn't won the election. Sometimes a victory brings so many other challenges, we might wonder if the victory was even worth it. Well, as we turn to 2 Samuel this morning, that's the kind of situation David finds himself in. Not David Cameron, David, king of Israel. In recent weeks, we've seen him face a significant challenge, a rebellion, led by his own son, Absalom. And judging by the level of support Absalom had, David was not expected to win. But he did. His tactics were superior in the situation. And even more importantly, the Lord was with him. David is victorious. The rebellion is broken. The direct threat to his kingdom has gone. But David is still in exile. David is up here in the top corner at a place called Mahanaim. That's the other side of the Jordan River from Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel's king. And so after that victory, this morning we find David facing an equally great challenge. After defeating Absalom comes the challenge of unity. We're going to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 19. If you're using a church Bible, that's page 325, and in the large print, 499. We're going to begin reading at chapter 19, verse 9, and we'll take the time to read to the end of chapter 19, so down to verse 43. This is just after the defeat of Absalom and his troops. Verse 9 says... Throughout the tribes of Israel, all the people were arguing among themselves, saying, the king delivered us from the hand of our enemies. He is the one who rescued us from the hand of the Philistines, but now he has fled the country to escape from Absalom. And Absalom, whom we anointed to rule over us, has died in battle. So why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? King David sent this message to Zadok, And Abiathar, the priests, ask the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his palace, since what is being said throughout Israel has reached the king at his quarters? You are my relatives, my own flesh and blood. So why should you be the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, are you not my own flesh and blood? May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if you are not the commander of my army for life, 
in place of Joab. He won over the hearts of the men of Judah so that they were all of one mind. They sent word to the king, Return, you and all your men. Then the king returned and went as far as the Jordan. Now the men of Judah had come to Gilgal to go out and meet the king and bring him across the Jordan. Shimei, son of Gera, the Benjamite from Baharim, hurried down with the men of Judah to meet King David. With him were a thousand Benjamites, along with Ziba, the steward of Saul's household, and his fifteen sons and twenty servants. They rushed to the Jordan, where the king was. They crossed at the ford to take the king's household over and to do whatever he wished. When Shimei, son of Gera, crossed the Jordan, he fell prostrate before the king and said to him, May my lord not hold me guilty. Do not remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem. May the king put it out of his mind, for I, your servant, know that I have sinned. But today I have come here as the first from the tribes of Joseph to come down and meet my lord the king. Then Abishai, son of Zeruiah, said, Shouldn't Shimei be put to death for this? He cursed the Lord's anointed. David replied, What does this have to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? What right do you have to interfere? Should anyone be put to death in Israel today? Don't I know that today I am king over Israel? So the king said to Shimei, You shall not die. And the king promised him on oath. Mephibosheth, Saul's grandson, also went down to meet the king. He had not taken care of his feet or trimmed his mustache or washed his clothes from the day the king left until the day he returned safely. When he came from Jerusalem to meet the king, the king asked him, Why didn't you go with me, Mephibosheth? He said, My lord the king, since I your servant am lame, I said, I will have my donkey saddled and will ride in it so that I can go with the king. But Ziba, my servant, betrayed me, and he has slandered your servant to my lord the king. My lord the king is like an angel of God, so do whatever you wish. All my grandfather's descendants deserve nothing but death from my lord the king. But you gave your servant a place among those who eat at your table. So what right do I have to make any more appeals to the king? The king said to him, Why say more? I order you and Ziba to divide the land. Mephibosheth said to the king, Let him take everything, now that my lord the king has returned home safely. Barzillai the Gileadite also came down from Rogalim to cross the Jordan with the king and to send him on his way from there. Now Barzillai was very old, 80 years of age. He had provided for the king during his stay in Mahanaim, for he was a very wealthy man. The king said to Barzillai, Cross over with me and stay with me in Jerusalem, and I will provide for you. But Barzillai answered the king, How many more years shall I live that I should go up to Jerusalem with the king? I am now eighty years old. Can I tell the difference between what is enjoyable and what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats and drinks? Can I still hear the voices of male and female singers? Why should your servant be an added burden to my lord the king? Your servant will cross over the Jordan with the king for a short distance. But why should the king reward me in this way? Let your servant return, that I may die in my own town, near the tomb of my father and mother. 
But here is your servant, Kimham. Let him cross over with my lord, the king. Do for him whatever you wish. The king said, Kimham shall cross over with me, and I will do for him whatever you wish. And anything you desire from me, I will do for you. So all the people crossed the Jordan, and then the king crossed over. The king kissed Barzillai and bade him farewell. And Barzillai returned to his home. When the king crossed over to Gilgal, Kimham crossed with him. All the troops of Judah and half the troops of Israel had taken the king over. Soon, all the men of Israel were complaining to the king and saying to him, Why did our brothers, the men of Judah, steal the king away and bring him and his household across the Jordan together with all his men? All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, We did this because the king is closely related to us. Why are you angry about it? Have we eaten any of the king's provisions? Have we taken anything for ourselves? Then the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king, so we have a greater claim on David than you have. Why then do you treat us with contempt? Weren't we the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the men of Judah pressed their claims even more forcefully than the men of Israel. This is God's word. And this passage begins with what is very clearly a divided kingdom. We know Absalom had worked for years to steal the hearts of the people of Israel. He stirred up suspicions about the king's concern for Israel. He sowed suggestions into people's minds that the king didn't really care, that the king wasn't really fair. And when Absalom finally had trumpets blown throughout Israel, it seems the majority of Israel followed Absalom. Now, several times since Absalom was defeated, we've been told his followers fled to their homes. They scattered. They ran back to the Jordan, splashed their way across, and went back to normal life in Israel. David's serious supporters are all with him at Mahanaim. And so David is not faced with an army on his doorstep anymore. But he knows very well, across the Jordan River, there's a nation that largely rejected him in favor of Absalom. So David has won a great victory, and he has inherited a massive headache. And while David's sitting at Mahanaim, verse 9 tells us what's going on across the Jordan in Israel. We're told throughout the tribes of Israel, all the people were arguing among themselves, saying, the king delivered us from the hand of our enemies. He is the one who rescued us from the hand of the Philistines. But now he has fled the country to escape from Absalom. And Absalom, whom we anointed to rule over us, has died in battle. So why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? The Israelites are arguing among themselves. These verses only give us one side of that argument. This is the bring David back side of the argument. But that is not what everyone's saying. Otherwise, it wouldn't be an argument. Some people have realized it was a terrible mistake to follow Absalom. 
His promises have turned out to be empty. His glamour has turned out to be nothing but a show. Some people realize, actually, Absalom never delivered us from anybody. David was our true saviour. He's our true king. We need to bring him back. We don't hear the argument from the other side, but it's very clear Israel is divided. And realizing what's going on, David takes the initiative. He doesn't sit back and wait. He presses for a positive decision. The next verses tell us about the king's call. David makes an appeal. And he directs it, first of all, to those in Judah. It's a little confusing when we hear about Judah and Israel because Judah is part of the nation of Israel. But for various reasons, the southern part of the land of Israel is often referred to as Judah. And the northern part of the land is often referred to as Israel. One nation with two very distinct regions. And what we need to know is, years before this, after King Saul's death, it was Judah who first recognized David as king. Through Samuel, God had anointed David years previous to that. But Judah was the first to officially recognize God's anointing. David began to reign over Judah from Hebron. And then over seven years later, all Israel recognized God's anointing of David. That's when David began to reign from Jerusalem. So David began his reign in a situation of division. Part of the nation recognized him and part of the nation didn't. And now he's faced with the same thing all over again. David appeals to those who first recognized him as king. But it's not because they've all stayed loyal to him. Chapter 15 told us Absalom was declared king in Hebron, David's old stronghold. So Judah have not stayed true to David. But look at his appeal to them in verse 12. He says, you are my relatives, my own flesh and blood. That's true. Judah is David's tribe. But this is about more than just tribal loyalty. This is what all of Israel said to David when they anointed him king. They said, we are your own flesh and blood. And their point was, you're one of us. You're not some usurper coming in from the outside. We have the same ancestry. It goes all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were saying to David, David, you have the right to rule over us. And now, as Israel bickers over whether they really want him back, David sends a message to Judah, to the place at the heart of Absalom's rebellion. And he says to them, nothing has changed. I claim you as my own. I claim my right and authority to be your king. Maybe you were the first to disown me, Judah. But now, be the first to bring me back. 
One writer says that David's call here is like the gospel. It's a call to welcome God's king. Jesus Christ has returned from his victory at the cross. And he calls the whole world to welcome him as king. He can also say to the world, I'm your own flesh and blood, born of a woman just like you. I'm not a usurper. I'm the rightful king of all those born of women. Every human being. Jesus calls sinners to turn from their rebellion and receive him as Lord of their lives. He has the right to rule. And his rule is good for us. It's what we need. Jesus is the only true savior. In the end, every other savior turns out to be a fake. The promises turn out to be empty. We've seen that with Absalom. It's true today as well. But back in Israel, along with this call David sends out, he says in verse 13, and say to Amasa, are not you my own flesh and blood? May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if you are not the commander of my army for life in place of Joab. Amasa, you may remember, had been Absalom's military commander. He's also David's nephew, just like Joab is. The two men have different mothers, but both their mothers are sisters of David. And we might think, well, David's motivation here is that he wants to get rid of Joab. But I'm not sure that is David's motivation. Yes, Joab is a dangerous man. We've seen at times he causes David no end of frustration. But Joab is also far and away the best commander around. Joab is the man you want at your side in tough situations. And this is still a tough situation for David. On the other hand, Amasa doesn't really have much going for him as a commander. He made a real hash of leading Absalom's army. Amasa had all the advantage in terms of numbers. But we've seen he was totally outthought and outmaneuvered in the forest of Ephraim. His leadership was totally ineffective. David's army won that battle easily. So I think we have to take this appointment of Amasa as simply an olive branch from David. He wants to send the message that he isn't going to wade back into Israel and slaughter those people who opposed him. He wants them to know he will be generous to his defeated enemies, starting with their commander. So Amasa is promoted. Next time we'll see what Joab makes of that. And without wanting to spoil the story, Joab ain't happy about it at all. But for now, David appeals to the people. He holds out this olive branch, promoting Amasa. And verse 14 says, He won over the hearts of the men of Judah, so that they were all of one mind. They sent word to the king, Return, you and all your men. 
Judah is united. They welcome the king back. And in fact, they don't just send him a message. They go en masse to welcome him. Verse 15. Then the king returned and went as far as the Jordan. Now the men of Judah had come to Gilgal to go out and meet the king and bring him across the Jordan. David is coming from east of the Jordan River. Gilgal is a point just west of the river. And it seems the men of Judah actually wade out into the river to help David and all his people across. And then from that quite general picture, we're reintroduced to four specific people. And they all have a past connection with David. This welcome for the king turns out to be a welcome from the shifty, the weak, and the tired. The first character we meet is definitely a shifty one. He appears in verse 16. And in case the name Shimei, son of Gera, doesn't ring a bell for you, when David was fleeing from Jerusalem to escape from Absalom, Shimei was the guy who walked along on a ridge above David's head, pelting David and his men with stones and dirt and cursing them all the while. You're a murderer. You're a scoundrel. The Lord has taken the kingdom from you. And now, given how the tables have turned, we might expect Shammai to be at home, hiding under the bed, or trying to get on a boat to the North Pole. But no, Shammai appears at the Jordan to help David come back. And look what he does in the middle of verse 18. He fell prostrate before the king and said to him, May my Lord not hold me guilty. Do not remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem. May, my, may the king put it out of his mind. For I, your servant, know that I have sinned. But today I have come here as the first from the tribes of Joseph to come down and meet my lord the king. How should we understand Shemai's repentance here? Is this a true change of heart? Or is this simple pragmatics? I want to stay alive, and this is what I've got to say to stay alive. Is this genuine, or is it just a performance? Well, really, there's no way of knowing. There's no way for us to be sure. There's no way for David to be sure. We can't see into Shimei's heart, and neither can David. But there is one person who is very sure about Shimei. Verse 21. Then Abishai, son of Zeruiah, said, Shouldn't Shimei be put to death for this? He cursed the Lord's anointed. Abishai is Joab's brother. And every single time he's mentioned in Scripture, Abishai is either killing someone or chasing someone trying to kill them or asking David to allow him to kill someone. So his attitude here is no surprise at all. 
In fact, the first time we met Shemai, Abishai made exactly the same suggestion to David. Let's chop him up. And judging by Shemai's past record, Abishai is right. Shemai does deserve to die. But David is not coming back to get even with his enemies. We've seen that already. This is a time of mercy. And David chooses to show mercy even to Shimei. Verse 22, David replied, What does this have to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? What right do you have to interfere? Should anyone be put to death in Israel today? Don't I know that today I am king over Israel? So the king said to Shimei, You shall not die. And the king promised him on oath. David is giving Shimei the benefit of the doubt here. But he can't see Shimei's heart. Only time will tell if his repentance is genuine. Shimei is a shifty character. But here, David takes his words at face value. However, years after this, when David is on his deathbed, David tells his son Solomon not to consider Shimei innocent. We're told that in 1 Kings. Now that suggests Shimei's life proved his repentance was not genuine. He turned out to be a snake. Just a sly schemer trying to switch sides whenever it suited him. This is helpful for us as we think about God's kingdom. We've got to give even the shiftiest characters the benefit of the doubt. If they claim to be repentant and if they show reasonable signs of genuine repentance. We can't afford to prejudge people because we can't see their hearts. But we can be sure time will reveal their hearts. Sooner or later, the truth will come to light. On this day, faced with a shifty character who seems repentant, David shows mercy. Then comes Mephibosheth, the lame grandson of King Saul. In the past, David sought Mephibosheth out, and he showed him great kindness. He even brought him to his table like one of his own sons. But when David was leaving Jerusalem, Mephibosheth didn't come. Instead, his servant Ziba appeared with provisions for David and his men. He claimed Mephibosheth had joined Absalom. And on the run, David made a snap decision then and there. He gave Mephibosheth the state over to Ziba and his family. And Ziba has also shown up here at the Jordan. Verse 17 told us he's hanging out with Shimei, which probably isn't a good sign. And Ziba is just as shifty as Shimei. But he doesn't speak here. Instead, Mephibosheth gets his chance to speak in verse 24. Mephibosheth, Saul's grandson, also went down to meet the king. 
He had not taken care of his feet or trimmed his mustache or washed his clothes from the day the king left until the day he returned safely. When he came down from Jerusalem to meet the king, the king asked him, Why didn't you go with me, Mephibosheth? He said, My lord, the king, since I, your servant, am lame, I said, I will have my donkey saddled and will ride in it so that I can go with the king. But Ziba, my servant, betrayed me, and he has slandered your servant to my lord, the king. My lord, the king is like an angel of God, so do whatever you wish. All my grandfather's descendants deserve nothing but death from my lord, the king. But you gave your servant a place among those who eat at your table. So what right do I have to make any more appeals to the king? Again, we have to ask, should we believe Mephibosheth here? And again, we have to say, we can't know for sure. It seems very likely he's telling the truth. For one thing, you can't grow a long, tangled mustache and long, curly toenails overnight. Those were signs of mourning. And they imply Mephibosheth has been mourning ever since David left Jerusalem. Not just since David's victory. And Mephibosheth's story has a ring of truth to it. He couldn't saddle a donkey without help. He's lame. If Ziba deserted him, his handicap made him helpless. One writer says that in Mephibosheth's case, where there was a will, there was not necessarily a way. But still, David can't read this man's heart any more than he can read Shimei's. He decides to transfer half of the estate back to Mephibosheth, letting Ziba still keep the other half. That seems to be David's way of saying, how can I know who to believe? Mind you, after this decision is made, we probably do get insight into Mephibosheth's heart. He doesn't whine that he's getting a raw deal. He just says in verse 30, let him take everything. Now my lord the king has returned home safely. Mephibosheth seems to be content just with the king. He doesn't feel any entitlement about how he should be treated. He's just happy the king is back where he belongs. Mephibosheth might be weak. He might not seem to contribute much to the kingdom. But apparently the king means everything to him. And again, this is helpful for us. As we think about God's kingdom, not everyone is going to be a dynamic achiever for the kingdom. But ultimately, we don't judge people by how much they can do. Instead, let's ask, does Jesus matter more than anything to this person? If he does, then this person is good for the kingdom. Even if they can't fulfill many tasks in the kingdom. David has been welcomed by the shifty, Shimei and Ziba, and the weak, Mephibosheth, 
And now he meets the tired. Barzillai the Gileadite. This man lived on the east of the Jordan. And when David and his followers were there in the wilderness, Barzillai went out on a limb to provide for them. And he provided lavishly, not just the bare basics. And now he makes quite a journey to give his best wishes to David and show his support all over again. And David wants to repay Barzillai's kindness. Verse 33, the king said to Barzillai, cross over with me and stay with me in Jerusalem and I will provide for you. But Barzillai answered the king, how many more years shall I live that I should go up to Jerusalem with the king? I am now 80 years old. Can I tell the difference between what is enjoyable and what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats and drinks? Can I still hear the voices of male and female singers? Why should your servant be an added burden to my lord the king? Your servant will cross over the Jordan with the king for a short distance. But why should the king reward me in this way? Let your servant return, that I may die in my own town near the tomb of my father and mother. But here is your servant Kimham. Let him cross over with my lord the king. Do for him whatever you wish. Barzillai is elderly and he's tired. He doesn't want the noise and the busyness of Jerusalem. He wants to stay close to his burial site. One writer says, at his advanced stage in life, Barzillai was far more interested in a dignified death than a dynamic life. He's tired. But... He does want others to benefit from the king's kindness. He says to David, all that you've just offered me, can you give it to Kimham instead? Presumably, Kimham is his son or some kind of younger relative. He's not mentioned anywhere else. And David says, okay. He doesn't rebuke Barzillai for lacking ambition He knows the old man loves him. He knows he's with him. And in the end, for all Barzillai's tiredness, he sends Kimham on his way to blessing. Maybe you feel like you're one of the tired men and women in God's kingdom. But can you still see a way to point others to the king's blessings? Maybe at this stage you are far more interested in a dignified death than a dynamic life. Maybe. But can you still look for someone to encourage on their way? Could you pinpoint a younger person, maybe a couple, get to know them, bring them to the king in prayer? Ask the king to give them all that they need? The returning king has been welcomed by the shifty, the weak, and the tired. But what is the point of giving us all this detail? There were thousands of people who met David at the Jordan. Why focus on these particular people? 
I think the point is, David's kingdom is not filled end-to-end with dynamic, wholehearted people. Not everyone is on fire for the king and his glory. Some love the king, but they're tired. Some love the king, but they're weak. They can't contribute all that much. Others, well, who knows where they really stand? They talk a good game. They put on a big show of supporting the king, but only time will tell what's in their heart. David won a great victory over Absalom the Antichrist. But here we're seeing the day-to-day realities of the kingdom are not that spectacular. David sent out his call, and we've seen a sample of the people who responded. It's a bit of a mixed bag. David shows mercy and love to all of them. But even he is not sure what he's dealing with in each case. That's what it can feel like in the kingdom of God sometimes. Read the New Testament. Starting with the Gospels and Acts and on through the epistles in the New Testament. The supporters of King Jesus seem like a mixed bag at times. They had fallouts. Some of them seemed to love Jesus, but they ended up deserting the cause. Even true believers didn't always care for one another the way they should. They didn't always honor the king the way they should. People who profess to follow God's king can be a frustration or a disappointment at times. When I was studying at a Christian college in the U.S., one of the students came to me once and said, this just isn't how I expected it to be. Some of these Christians argue about the silliest things. They can be so touchy sometimes. I didn't expect this. His problem was he expected perfection in the wrong place. Christians are an imperfect bunch of people. We can be a disappointment to one another sometimes. I'm not saying we should expect people to let us down, but we should not be surprised if they do. It shouldn't come as a devastating shock to us. Only our king is perfect. Now, we do have a high calling as Christians. We're to be conformed to the image of Jesus. But the people you see around you are going to make mistakes. Sometimes they'll let you down by accident. Sometimes they might even do it on purpose. I hope that's a very rare occurrence. But it might happen. The point to get here is not that we should be defeatist about this. We're not to expect people to hurt and disappoint us. We have to take the risk of trusting other people. But the point is, there is only one totally reliable person in the church, and that's Jesus. Put all of your confidence in him. 
Otherwise, you will find yourself bickering and fighting with people because they turn out to be imperfect. That is exactly what we see here in Israel. Look back to our passage, verse 40. When the king crossed over to Gilgal, Kimham crossed with him. All the troops of Judah and half the troops of Israel had taken the king over. Soon, all the men of Israel were complaining to the king and saying to him, Why did our brothers, the men of Judah, steal the king away and bring him and his household across the Jordan together with all his men? All the men of Judah answered the, king of Israel, the men of Israel, We did this because the king is closely related to us. Why are you angry about it? Have we eaten any of the king's provisions? Have we taken anything for ourselves? Then the man of Israel answered the man of Judah, We have ten shares in the king, so we have a greater claim on David than you have. Why then do you treat us with contempt? Weren't we the first to speak of bringing our king back? But the man of Judah pressed their claims even more forcefully than the man of Israel. More forcefully could be translated more fiercely or more harshly. And remember, these are the people who have responded to David's call. These are the people who've come to receive him as king. They end up having a full-on row on the riverbank. And what's it even about? Nothing. Who got to the river first? Who got to carry David's suitcase across the river? Our passage began by showing us a divided kingdom. Well, now the king is back in the kingdom, and yet we find a kingdom still divided. There were divisions in Israel before David came to the throne. They burst out again during Absalom's revolt. And David's victory hasn't got rid of them. David can't heal these problems. They're just too deep. His kingdom was unstable from the very beginning, and it's still wobbly. We'll see next week it gets even worse. And if we read on through the Old Testament, we find the divisions in Israel just spiraling out of control. When David's son Solomon dies, the nation splits fully in two. And none of the later kings are able to reunite it. That's why David's kingdom was only a pale shadow of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We've seen it's not the people in Jesus' kingdom that make it different from David's. It's the king who makes it different. David could not have united us any more than he could unite his own people. We are an equally incompatible bunch, really. But what's different for us is our king. Jesus has power and ability David never had. He can unite sinful people like us. 
And the New Testament explains what it is that's different about Jesus' kingdom. These words are written to the church. We read them last week, but they're worth coming back to. In Christ, Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Then a few verses further on, Paul mentions the sign of this unity. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So if we ask the question again, why will Jesus' kingdom succeed in a way that David's never could? If you and I are the same kind of sinners as the people in David's kingdom, how can we hope for unity? The answer is, we already are united. We are one in Christ. Each of us who belong to Christ have exactly the same spirit of Christ in us. When Jesus won his great victory at the cross, things did not stay the same. The risen Jesus poured out his spirit on his people. We are one family with one Lord and one Father in heaven. So our calling is not to try and manufacture some kind of unity. Our calling is to nurture the unity we already have. So please, don't expect perfection from your brothers and sisters. Don't give up in disgust if some of them let you down. But do put your confidence in Jesus. Trust his power to heal differences and wounds. Believe you can get along with even the most awkward person in the church, as you see it. Believe it because you share the same spirit of Christ. Trust Jesus' power and do all that you can to nurture unity in the fellowship. You and I are not doomed to repeat the divisions we've seen in David's kingdom. When we're united through faith in Christ, and as we submit together to the written word of Christ, we have divine power to overcome our divisions. We're going to take the time now to remind one another of that. We're going to join together in singing the song we learned earlier, Beneath the Cross of Jesus.